Welcome to Act Dad, the Awesome Dad Show. I'm your host, Mark Savant, and on this show, we break down the issues that impact fathers and the tips, tools, and tactics that you can use to be the best dad you can be. Today's guest is awesome. I interview Democratic presidential candidate Joe Sestak. Joe has a really amazing story. He graduated second in his class from the Naval Academy. In the Navy, he achieved the rank of three-star admiral, responsible for thousands of people, dozens of boats, just an incredibly impressive resume. He also helped guide his family through one of the life's biggest challenges. His daughter fought brain cancer twice in her life and is still standing today. If you're going through a traumatic or difficult experience, Joe can bring a lot of wisdom to you. Quick note, the sound quality on this episode is not as great as I typically expect or hope for. Joe is currently walking across the state of New Hampshire and his internet signal is a little in and out, but I think I was able to salvage enough of the quality that it's a great listening experience. Leave a like and leave a comment on what you think about the show. If you haven't already, make sure that you subscribe to the Act Dad show. Every Monday there is a fresh episode. I would definitely encourage you to go over to www.actedad.com to see all the ways that I am helping impact fathers just like you in a very profound way. There's a lot of issues that we face and we got to stick together. It's all about community. Look, I could go on for a while, but I want to get right into the episode. Here is the interview with Joe Sestak. I am honored today to be joined by presidential candidate Joe Sestak. I'm really excited to get into today's conversation. Joe, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm walking across New Hampshire. I just finished about 13 miles, and thanks for having me aboard. There's a lot of different ways this conversation could go. You've done some amazing things, whether it's graduating second in, the, in your class at the Naval Academy, achieving the rank of three-star admiral, serving on the House of Representatives for Pennsylvania for two terms, CEO of... Uh, nonprofit, first quote. You've done so many different things. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just really excited to talk about it. But tell me a little bit about your walk across New Hampshire. How's that going? Well, it's going very well. We actually, uh, when Alex, my daughter, was uh, four years old, and all one book that we began to read to her was To Kill a Mockingbird. And as you know, in it, Scout says how Atticus, her father, once said, you can't know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. In fact, my daughter later on for a race actually drew a picture with those words on it, Joe Sestak's walking in shoes, and that's what I'm doing. A mental health facility that we visited that takes care of those with PTSD, first responders, as well as veterans. Walked into a prison where too many become incarcerated because of an addiction issue, just to meet there. I go to prison every year on Veterans Day when I was a congressman and even after. I went to the largest caterpillar lab in America where the young man ever since four years old has this has fascination, but it's more than that. You walk in and it's awesome. And he goes to Harvard University, he goes to Boston Museum to show how this little ecological uh, world built around a caterpillar is going to have to be sustained because it's a critical part of the human chain, so to speak, that eventually gets to us as climate change is coming. It's a fascinating, fascinating walk. And if you haven't believed, you know, that thinking that America's being torn asunder too much, all of a sudden you find these people and say, yeah, America's still great. I love it. Well, I would agree with you there. I think America is a great country. There's a lot of opportunity, but there's a lot of challenges too. And I think that what you're doing, walking, shaking hands, getting in touch with people is, is, is a really great way to go about that. 
So, Joe, one of the things, again, I just want to thank you so much for your service to this country. You were in the Navy for 30 years. My father was a CB in the Navy about the same time that you were serving as well. So I have an immense amount of appreciation for you there. I'm wondering, how does your experience, so you have a, let me create a little bit of context. You have a, your, you have a daughter, you're married. How old's your daughter now, Joe? She's now 18. 18. Perfect. How, how did your experience in the Navy, how did that prepare you for fatherhood? You really come to hold very precious those times when you're home because you might be gone for six, eight months. And then when you come home, you're gone about half the time over the next year doing workups and all. And I think it came to me through that absence, whether it was from a, a, a girlfriend at the time or from the woman I eventually married, where I proposed to her and after meeting her after two days and she said no. And eight years later, I finally convinced her to say yes. <laughs> uh, it's that precious time, I think where it isn't just the number of times you're there. It's how you value that time. Mm. Second, that you share the interest with her. So when I deployed, conscious of that, I made sure that I was sending back before internet that I would do a VCR tape and send them to her. So it's that I came to understand that it wasn't my telling her about what I was doing. Is what was she experiencing? What was she reading? Philippa Gregory books, a fictional uh, creative fiction that I needed to read while I was deployed in order to be able to converse in her interests. And I think that's what I got from the absences that I was having. Because I have to tell you, those that uh, serve in the military for like over 20 years, by the time their uh, children get to high school, uh, they found in studies that probably half the children are functionally disassociated from high mm. school because of the challenges of parents being gone. And then they come and move every two or three years. And so it's a challenge for that family. So every moment at home has to be held precious. I think that's one of the most selfless things that you can do as a father is say, hey, I feel this calling to be in the military, to be there. And, and I remember days, I remember months where my dad would be out at sea and I didn't get to see him for some time. But I, and, and it's something I think about a lot. In my opinion, there is such a need for fathers to be involved in their kids' lives. And I love that idea of, hey, my daughter's reading this book. I'm going to read this book also so that you have that commonality that's so profound. Was there anything else that you did, Joe, to make sure that you stayed attached to her yeah. during those times away? Absolutely. The aircraft carrier battle group that I commanded in the war, the carrier was named George Washington. So I brought a little duck with me. My daughter just had been born at 9-11, and then I went to the war. And so I took a little duck, and um, it was like, now I went on the ground for a very brief period. The beginning of the war came out, and then about a year later, deployed with an aircraft carrier to continue the strikes. But I brought a little duck with me, rubber duck, and named him Herman from Mount Vernon. So wherever I went, I had it. I get into an aircraft, you know, an F-14, and sat in that there. He even had a picture taken with it. And then I, a Japanese, when I got there, in command of the carrier battle group, there's 20 international ships there waiting to become part of our battle group. Because they had come because, as the town minister of defense said, America has been attacked and we will be there for them. So as we went over and met with the Japanese admiral who was there, I asked him to hold the duck. Right. <laughs> and if I uh, went on the ground somewhere uh, in Afghanistan, I asked him to hold the duck. If I, I went out always with a troop, so I would go out with those that he mined uh, mine and uh, in the sea. And we'd hang from a rope, but I'd show them holding the duck as I went off. And then I'd send her these pictures so she could always enjoy 
because she had a little rubber duck and that she could enjoy the tra- tra- the, the journey of Herman from Alvarez. So there was a connection in whatever I did of something she, she enjoyed. And it was wonderful. I remember the first time we did it, she went up to the, and took a picture. She went up to the TV screen and just kissed it. That's fantastic. I, I just, I'm, I'm always looking for different tips and tricks that can be applicable for, for other fathers as well, because other fathers go through these various issues. So I, I love that idea of using Herman as a way to make sure, hey, baby, I'm still thinking about you. I'm still here for you. I'm curious. So you're, you're out there at sea, you're leading tens of thousands of people, 20 different ships, three-star admiral. Obviously, you've garnered a lot of leadership experience. How did you apply that leadership experience to your role as a father when you got back home? Do you think that was important? Yeah, I do think it was important. I think one of the most important things of leadership is to listen. Mm. I think that by the time I made Admiral, I wasn't paid to know everything. I was paid for judgment and to listen to various viewpoints on some tactical problem to go down and there might be an engineering issue that uh, was of great enormity and needed to come to my attention and to listen to how they felt we could best resolve and get back into combat readiness in some area. Judgment, becoming uh, an admiral and understand that I didn't know it all. I had a semblance of knowledge in areas, but I had been trained for judgment, made me want to listen, to quietly think through what she had to say. And I can remember, for example, it was time to, for her to go to confirmation. And uh, she was going through what's called CDC for the Catholic faith. She decided and told me that she felt that she didn't necessarily want to go to confirmation. I said, well, why don't you tell me why? And she walked through the reason. And I said, well, makes sense. <laughs> so I think it was that ability that most helped me from having risen to where I did that, boy, you better be listening because there's no way when you have 100 planes taken off and a mm. nuclear reactor down on that thing, it's run by 5,000 sailors on that ship alone, never mind the thousands that are elsewhere, that you're going to know it all. And you better be listening and have the judgment to make the right decision based upon what, you, what you've heard. So it's, it's really interesting that you say that, Joe, because I perform many interviews and Listening skills comes up quite a bit. So I find that to be kind of a common denominator amongst great leaders and community builders. When do you distinguish, okay, it's time to listen versus, okay, now it's time to coach. Now it's time to give my opinion. It's time to give my order. How do you find that balance of when to listen versus to talk? That's a tough one. To a large degree, I try to do it as lightly as possible and not early. And that may be unique to my daughter. It may not be. But my daughter faced death at a very young age. And she knows that. She didn't understand the import of it until years later. But she knows that. And so she's an old soul in a young body. And wise, I believe, beyond her years. If you really do believe that someone needs to carve out their young life and older life, you should... In her case, because what I would argue was her maturity for what she went through, having spent days, years with doctors, more with doctors and adults than she did with peers, that I had to recognize that it had to be done in a way where you were saying, you may want to think about this rather than here is the answer, so to speak. I was fortunate in her case, unfortunate to bring cancer, but fortunate that... Um, 
I think she had unique insight into life that I would argue I didn't have until decades later. And I was fortunate to recognize that as I watched her do it. And I also through her humor, at least I hope it was her humor, because once at nine years old, I said, hey, Alex, how am I doing raising you? And she kind of smiled a little, put her hand on my shoulder and said, oh, daddy, I'm raising you. Wow. She really wasn't a large, you know, that saying that children make adults out of parents. I mean, there's just so much to un- un- unravel there. And, and you're right. I find that the more I try to teach my daughter, the more I actually learn. It's, it's funny how that, how that works out. I also feel like a lot of times we can be, I hate to use the word spoiled, but maybe not fully appreciate. We don't have enough gratitude for what we have sometimes as human beings living in the United States. I mean, there's a lot of different countries, a lot of different places in the world you could live. And having an experience like that, I I would imagine it it gives you like a second lease on life, right? How did, so your your daughter's battle with with brain cancer at age five, how did that impact the way that you looked at life? Well, I think it puts everything in perspective. First off, I knew I had accountability to pay back my country. We couldn't get the first, the brain cancer operation for very fine uh, surgeons uh, they were at military hospital. They were unable to get it all the first time. And glioblastoma, which she had, if you don't get it, almost a total resection, you really have little, little chance of making it. But the Harvard Plan gave us a military community to take her to other places. And a wonderful surgeon came down from Mass General to do the brain operation, and one of the best, and saved her. So I had to pay back my country. And that was the lesson, first off, that affected me is – accountability for what I had been given to pay back. And that's why I became a Democrat, went home to a two-to-one Republican district, nearly two-to-one, and ran on national security begins at home. I retired Navy Admiral, but national security begins at home and health security. That's what I ran on. I wanted everybody to have what I had. But I think that was number one. Number two was I became empathetic instead of just sympathetic. Hmm. Walk out and understand that. This is how families feel, no matter what the challenge they have. I could have had it with a, perhaps it's a child with a a different type of disease or has been in a car accident. All families go through some challenge. And where I've been in the military, to a large degree, just take youth throughout America and bind them together to a common mission and make them more empathetic of where they came and the impact of their own experiences. That's why part of, quite frankly, I'm walking across New Hampshire, like I did Pennsylvania in my second Senate race. It's walking in the shoes. Can't know a man, a scout said, her father told her, until you walk in his shoes or walk around them. That's why I visit prisons with the vets. What brought them there? You know, great service to our country, somehow addiction, perhaps, that got him into crime. And I think that's the second thing. It really made me more empathetic. Some great insight. Some great insight. I mean, every day is a blessing, Joe, because you just don't know what tomorrow will bring. And I, I think being able to pass down those life lessons to other fathers that are in, inevitably going to handle these issues is that those life experiences are just absolutely crucial. I'm curious not only as a father, but as a, as a husband, how did you, I mean, I can't imagine the stress that your family was going through at this time, right? Your, your little precious child, probably the most important thing in your life at that time is going undergoing this. How did, how did you play your support role? How did you support your family and, and give them the encouragement they needed to get through that struggle? 
We were very fortunate. My wife's an extraordinarily strong woman. Don't get me wrong, it was devastating, particularly after they said she only had about 90 days. I can remember shortly after the chemotherapy began, my wife, I was still in the Navy, but I was able to be with my daughter. I was waiting to get out. And so she went back to work and I watched my, my daughter uh, woke up the next morning and the chemotherapy had begun taking her hair was falling out. Of course, I didn't know how to handle this. My daughter woke up and felt her hair around her and she's four years old. She wore nothing but girls dresses and she was all girl. <laughs> oh yeah. There and she said, Daddy, I need a mirror. I said, oh, honey, you don't need a mirror. <laughs> you know what I mean? I said, I need a mirror. So she looked at a mirror and said, looked at herself. And all she said was, I'll never be pretty again. Ratchet ahead another two months or so, and I'm in a store with her getting some pictures of my father done from World War II, the ships he had been on for birth, Christmas present. He said, and as I'm standing there, she's in a dress, and she has a little bit of hair on the back of her neck that hadn't fallen off, probably about four or five strands. And this little boy comes over, he's probably 10, 12 years old, didn't mean any harm, and said, are you a boy? And my daughter, you know, I'm here as a father wanting to, you know, protect her do something. She just turns around to him and says, no, I'm a girl. I'm going through chemotherapy. My hair is going to come back next summer. And the boy walks away. He meant no harm. And then she turns to me and says, Daddy, didn't he see my dress? And didn't he see my hair? In other words, to me, I, I said, hey, the world's not. The world's wrong, not me. You know? And I think it was that incident that, you know, more than anything said, he's a young warrior. You know what I mean? Who just said, I got this thing. I got it locked and and I'm going to take care of this. And they probably read too much into it, but you know, when your daughter one day is waking up, said, I'll be hurt again. And there she is two months later saying, Hey, can he see my hair? Doesn't he get it? Doesn't he observe? You know, it's sort of like, I'm okay. Yeah. I mean, to me, that would be like, I feel my, my stomach sink when I hear your daughter say, well, I'd be pretty again. Like, gosh, like is, is a father, that's all you want. That's all we want is for our kids to be better than us, to live a better life than us. Right, man. Just, just really powerful for her to have that inner confidence at that age of five or six years old. Like, I, I mean, a lot of kids would break down. So I got to give you a lot of props as dad in helping instill that confidence in her so that she can have the appropriate response. This is why I'm very interested in mental health and all this. Uh, my facilities is afterwards, there was a, when you check in, you know, all these social workers or psychiatrists all come in and say, if you need anything, just let us know. We were okay moving down the road, but afterwards I went to see one. And I said, can you tell me how many of these kids make it afterwards mentally? Because we saw it all in there. And there's some challenges. And she said, you know, a mental health words that's what they go through because you're being poorly you know it's traumatic and uh the woman said uh said about 40 60 percent make it without um any kind of mental challenge coming through i said what's the difference for those who do a donor in the hole and why and she said it has to do with family support wow i mean and uh there's a wonderful story of bill clinton who kind of got this, I think, that, you know, this family support is also can hurt families if you don't have it done well, um, because he's going through a rope line. And this was written by a journalist who I think they tend to view the world 
you know, they get to see a lot of the world and he's following Clinton around and he watches him go through a rope line and sees a young child with brain cancer, you know, talks to the child who's in a wheelchair bald and says, you're very brave, all that. And really, you know, I'm very impressed with how you seem to be doing here. But then he did something that no other politician would do. He turned to the sibling and actually said, I know this is hardest on you. At times it looks as though your parents may think as though they've forgotten you. But you need to know you're the one who's keeping the family together by giving time with you. And we saw that in the things. They'd come in, a single mom working, and throw the other kid you know, into the playroom. And the kid would come in. The mom didn't have time. These were precious hours with her son or daughter. You know, who knew they are going to make it? Part of the reason why I worked in a non-profit that has to do with siblings, even though she didn't have a siblings, I had mentioned to people about this. And so this fellow took over one of the nonprofits and he changed the nonprofits to change it towards that because families of the siblings get, you know, let me tell you, when it happened to my daughter and they said 90 days, I mean, we were full bore to take care of that problem. You know, studying, reading, I mean, yeah, sure, I trust the doctors, but I wanted to know if there's something going to be missed. And so I, it was a good lesson, I think. And it really came to me when I read that book about, you know, that's really what we saw. So it hurt, you know, it's a challenge to a family. We were very fortunate. My daughter was so strong. Absolutely. And, and like you said as well, on the back end, you have a lot of mental health issues. So I, I want to segue a little bit into that topic here, you know, mental health and some of the issues. Don't want to get too political, but talk a little bit of policy. About a decade ago, Obama put into place the White House Council for Women and Girls, which I think was a really important thing. Women's issues, women's rights issues, I think, are, are really important. But what, what it just actually came to my attention a while ago when I interviewed, I guess, Dr. Warren Farrell. And he had mentioned that, well, there's no, there's no White House Council for men and boys. And we started looking at the numbers, suicide rates violence, mental health, opioid abuse, depression, and mass shootings. Mass shootings are almost completely completed by, by young men. A lot of times, young men that don't have access to their fathers. And, and, and he kind of brought it to my attention. I was like, wow, this is, this is some pretty shocking stuff. It's like 95% of mass shootings are done by, by boys that haven't, haven't had a, a, male, a positive male role model in the sense of their father. So I'm just curious, in, in, in your opinion, what's the way we can right this ship? How can we get boys and men back to feeling like they're, they're important in the family, like they're, they're a meaningful member of society? What's the, way, what's the way that we could do that, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have a point. I mean, to one degree, we went over the years, you know, it was always – well, the boys are going to go and be educated. So you really had another marginalized community to a large degree, you know, with women that, you know, didn't have the right to vote. But beyond that, domestic abuse was kind of almost accepted over the centuries, you know, because it was the family that was handling. Mm -hmm. But I do think to a large degree, because of how our society has evolved with so many, and I've gotten the exact statistic, it may be as high as 40% of children are born into single moms or something. 40% outside of marriage. Outside of marriage. Know. That's what it is. Thank you. Um, that's what it is. That would you begin to say, where is that father figure? Which I think is very important. I can remember reading about having a school, I think it was in Chicago, and this is about five or seven years ago, where it was for African-American, but the only teachers were to be males. There was a lot of controversy, actually, about it, so that they would have that male role as well. 
Um, I went to over 200 African-American churches when I was running for Senate for a per reason. And during the time, if you ever go to African-American churches, um, there's several unique things about it, which I can go into how much to read into the beauty of why religion is such a wonderful fabric. And, and they still wear coat and ties and everything. That's because there's the only place they had to go during slavery. <laughs> yeah, in the field under their pastor. So our pastor is so powerful in the African-American community. Martin Luther King had just written a pass, write a passage of, to do things because of what it was. But you also go in and there's very few young men in those congregations. Hmm. And, uh, and a lot of men in jail. Too many. And so I think this idea that you propose in this school that I remember reading about is actually one of the more critical things. You see it in the Navy. You know, it's a chief petty officer, mentor. I mean, everybody needs it. Um, someone who, you know, puts their arm around an officer like me come aboard and said, hey, you know, they're the Navy, do a little different. Hey, keep quiet, listen to me, you'll be okay. You know, and I'm going to growth. But... You know, that kind of mentoring is, is precious. I'm staying at home of a spouse, of a, for, a former spouse of a young naval officer that I just thought the world of. And, uh, but he had some problems, some challenges over the years and, did, came, and came through them uh, and became an outstanding officer. But I think if there hadn't been some mentoring there, here or there, you know, it might not have worked out. Do I believe in insurance? Should be an equipment counsel? Yeah. You know, I think to some degree when you see Many of these men are seeing, you know, we take the construction industry. I mean, the, you know, unemployment rate during that great recession, I think, was like 18% for construction workers, but 93% of all workers are, are men. And you see your pop without a job. That also can have a significant impact. So do I think it matters? Yeah, I do think it matters. And and I'll keep that. I hadn't really thought through an equipment council or something, but I think it's something to think about because... You go through those rural counties, and there is some real hidden poverty, some real hidden challenges there. And I'm not just saying rural. You can go into Philadelphia, and there are certain districts there where infant mortality rate is less than it is in Syria. And so, of course, having that, I think, would be a benefit. More to your point, as women have become more respected in the workplace, more executives, I think as the women get built up, the men get built up too, right? You have to build each other up. Mom's going to work because she's the CEO of a corporation. Well, who's watching the kids? Well, maybe dad is stepping into that role. So I think we've got kind of a homogenization of, of roles that's occurring here. But yeah, I, I think it's an interesting, I think it's an important conversation to have when you start looking at some of these major statistical issues that are impacting them. And that doesn't mean by any means, I know this just from my wife's personal experience that we've overcome the challenges the women have. Um, you know, we've had in Pennsylvania tell people, at least it was a few years ago, incarceration of women that are going into prisons, you know, an increase of 80% in eight years. And what happens to that? So I think you do have to keep on because they even have a bigger barrier to come across. But I think the loss of those single family mom, those single families are, is really something. It's a double the job. It was harder than anything. It's harder than going out. That's why. That's why Navy bags. We used to have the name. We used to say Navy spouse, toughest job in the Navy. No arguments there. It's it's not easy. It's a full time, twenty four seven, three sixty five job when you're a stay at home parent for sure. Well, Joe, before I let you go here, I want to go through a, a quick rapid fire questions for you. All right. What is your favorite story to either tell or read to your child? 
my favorite one is um, anything that has to do with creative fiction out of the 18th or 16th century. Okay. Primarily by Philippa Gregory. Love that. How about favorite vacation to go on with your family? I'll tell you, I'll take one that was my favorite. And I don't have to go back yet. We went to the Galapagos. Oh, cool. Very cool. We went there. And as you know, probably that it's pretty, they try to protect it. And so you get very small ships to go there. Very, very small. And so it was so great because you could be out, you go to see human nature, human, uh, I mean, uh, the ecology there out and all. And I don't think I've had a, had a more delightful at ease where nature seemed as much part of what we were doing as we felt it was part of nature there. And yet in the evenings, got to sit out there in the calm of the night on the back of a ship, which I actually loved, and watch the moon come and go. It was just fantastic. So that was probably my favorite. Very cool. Galapagos. Love that. Favorite, what's the must-have food at Thanksgiving? What's the must-have? It's turkey. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it just is. Um, my mom, my wife enjoys it. Uh, my mother-in-law, uh, uh, my, we, go, we try to run around and go everywhere on it. But that turkey is without a question. Brilliant. And uh, final question here. If you could put something on a billboard to reach millions and millions and millions of people, what would it be? I think what it might be is just based upon, and I say this only because of my experience here in New Hampshire, having gone to a mental health facility in my first stop. I mean, I don't know how I would express it, but I tried to talk about the biggest disease in American mental health. And it would probably be something where it said, there is no stigma, there is no shame in having part, being part of the largest disease in America, and we're here to help. I don't Love care that. If addiction that's sometimes entwined with it or whether it's mental health. We saw that because I think the mind is the last great frontier. We saw that pro, both for individuals and the productivity of America be so much, so much greater. Love that, Joe. All right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us here on Act Out the Awesome Ed Show. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just so thrilled to have this conversation. Everyone, you definitely got to look at what Joe's doing at joesestack.com. Anyone else they can find you, Joe? No, that's it. joesestack.com. S-E-S-T-A-K. S-E-S-T-A-K. joesestack.com. Mark, thanks for having me aboard. It's my pleasure. Have an awesome one, and I will talk to you soon, Joe. Take care. I really hope you enjoyed the episode here today with Joe Sestak. I really enjoyed our conversation. At times, it was a little bit hard to hear him, but man, I got a lot of really great information. I was really impressed with his ability to stand by his his child through some really, really difficult times. It's really difficult when you're trying to balance allegiance to your country and to your family. So I have an immense amount of respect for anyone in the armed forces. Thank you so much. I also want to remind you, hey, if you haven't already, take a moment, subscribe to the podcast. Every Monday, there's a fresh episode. You can also find video versions of the episodes over on YouTube. And make sure that if you haven't already, that you join Act Dad, the awesome dad group over on Facebook. It's a fantastic community that I know you're going to love. Thanks again for being an Act Dad and listening into today's episode. Tell a friend and I will catch you next week on Monday. Peace.